Pop Health Podcast is a public service of 24-hour home care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Pop Health Podcast. This is Gavin Ward, host of Pop Health Podcast. And today's episode actually has, I think, its first executive producer guest in our show's history. And that is Dr. William Dale, who is the chair for supportive care medicine at City of Hope in California, which is also one of the most famous cancer care centers throughout the world. In today's episode, Dr. William Dale, or William, as he prefers people to call him, talks about his journey from Illinois, where he actually played basketball with President Barack Obama multiple times, to ultimately coming out west, where he resides in actually my hometown. Um, William actually leads a lot of great supportive care medicine efforts at City of Hope. And today's episode talks a little bit about the difference between supportive care medicine and palliative care. And William also opens up about his movie that he helped produce called The Elephant in the Room, which was filmed on site at City of Hope. In the film, you actually learn about the special relationship between a nurse practitioner and one of his patients that's actually dying. And the movie brings in humor, emotion, and some really tough talking points. And ultimately, the joy of building that relationship and how medical professionals can really be a comfort and a peace point for families going through tough times. We hope you enjoyed today's episode with William. And of course, if you want to find other episodes of Pop Up Podcast, check us out at popupodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and our new YouTube channel as well. Thanks, everybody. Enjoy the show. All right. So, Dr. Dale, thanks so much for joining. Well, actually, you gave me permission uh, to call you William. So, I hope I yes. can. Uh, please, 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 William. I prefer it. All right, great. So we usually like to kick off the show with getting to know the guest a little bit. So can you share with us something about you, maybe outside of the workplace, maybe a fun fact, a surprising fact about you? Yeah, um, I have a couple things. So I have some people I've met in my life that might surprise people. Uh, I have played basketball a number of times with uh, President Barack Obama during my time at the University of Chicago. Um, and uh I'll only note that, like many lawyers, he argues a lot on the basketball court. <laughs> um, I also, for some time, was friends with and uh, shared an apartment with Jimmy Wales, who's the co-founder of Wikipedia. Uh, oh. Before he ever founded Wikipedia, we were both in Chicago and knew each other, and he needed a place to live for a while, uh, well before he became famous. I have a story or two about Jimmy. And then I, I did want to mention my mom, people wouldn't know this, is a senior Olympian at the national level. So she's uh, in the top five in some events, jumping events in uh, senior Olympics. Wow. You have, yeah. uh, you've had quite, uh, quite some connections there. So I want to ask you, um, I just, my mom, um, for her birthday, she actually got uh, Obama's uh, new book. Um, and so uh, I might have to ask you if there's a way for me to get a signature there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he his wife worked at the University of Chicago and he was a law professor when I was in med school there. OK, That's how we know each other. Unfortunately, we're not in close contact. I don't hang out with them on a regular basis. Yeah, no problem at all. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm just kidding about the signature. So uh, let's let's jump in. You mentioned Chicago. So tell us a little bit about where you grew up and uh, where you ended up going to medical school. Sure. Uh, I'm an Illinoisan most of my life until I came out west uh, recently. Uh, so I grew up in very small town, Illinois, um, the northern part of the state, for those who know it, right on the Wisconsin border in a place called Roscoe, Illinois. 
its biggest city that's nearby is Rockford, Illinois. Um, Roscoe's most famous citizen uh, is Danica Patrick, the yeah. race car driver um, who drove at the Rockford Speedway, which I remember vividly and probably drove the same carts I did when I was there. Uh, we moved when I was in high school to Springfield, Illinois, the state capital. Um, and that's where I also grew up from sophomore year on. Um, you know, very, very small town, rural area, just a few thousand people. Um, and that's spent most of my childhood out kind of running around outside doing various things. Um, uh, you know, I, I collecting animals in some ways into my into my house uh, until I ended up going to the University of Illinois um, in Champaign when I um, finished high school. Okay, awesome. Really quickly, you mentioned uh, collecting animals or, or bringing animals into the house. What type of uh, animals or was it insects or? Everything you can imagine, believe it or not. So we had traditional pets, you know, cats and dogs, uh, but we lived in an area that we would just go out and sort of explore forest, creeks, all that kind of stuff. Turtles, frogs, snakes, we caught butterflies, you know, it was a little bit of everything, anything we could bring home, we would bring home and sort of nurture and uh, let them go um, after they had sort of been there for a while. Um, and my mom was uh, believed in us learning about the outdoors and thought this was a good way to encourage that interest. Nice. I'm uh, I'm trying to do the same uh, with my kids, but uh, right now, uh, silverfish are very scary uh, to them. <laughs> so we're trying to get them out of our house. We haven't figured out a trick there, but um, yeah, so. you know, I, I can't I can't uh, help but say so. We moved here. Uh, the house we moved into had a lot of wildlife around it. It's in the foothills, and uh, my my boys find it amazing that. I had all these pets. So like, really? They had frogs in the house like that. That's so weird. And then, and then one day I hear this like screaming and yelling in my house. I'm like, what is going on? And it turned out um, a little tiny baby possum had snuck into the house. Oh, wow. And my kids were like hiding in the bathroom and were like, get it to go away. And I was like, it's just a little scared little animal. <laughs> they like, you know, caught it, took it back out, let it go, let it run away. But, um, I, I was, you know, impressed with the difference between my uh, upbringing and my kids who are, you know, just not their thing. <laughs> we hear, I, I think our kids share that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you mentioned the foothills. So we're going to talk a little bit about City Hope in a few minutes. Uh, for those of you that don't know um, where uh, where William leads uh, City Hope Medical Center, it's in Duarte, California, which, again, I know you'll jump into a little bit about City Hope in a moment, but it's it is close to the foothills. So uh, definitely makes sense that you, uh, sounds like you live pretty close by. Yeah, we live a little down the road in a uh, place called Glendora, which is sort of straight down the 210, um, a little bit east and in the foothills. Uh, it's lovely, beautiful. That's my hometown, William. Oh, really? <laughs> wow. Yeah. I, that's amazing. Yeah, no, we... We, we're, we've really enjoyed living in Glendora for the last almost four years now. Nice. Uh, shout out to mom. Uh, looks like uh, William is uh, not, maybe not neighbor, but uh, so my mom, I'm not sure if you know where the Stater Brothers is off Lone Hill. Uh, oh, yeah, for sure. We are practical neighbors just for what it's worth. We, we live um, right across the street from the middle school, yep. uh, from, from the Goddard Middle School. So oh, yeah. um, uh, I'm just off of Sierra Madre. 
Yeah, I used to play soccer at Goddard, so uh, in the little youth league up there, so small world. Wow, very small. <laughs> yeah, also for those of you listening, I know this isn't healthcare related, but Vanilla Ice uh, is a Glendora person as well. Uh, <laughs> real name, Rob, something or other. So. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know that. I had heard about the Van Halen, the Van Halen connection um, to their bass player lived here apparently in one of the houses for some time. Yeah, it's, uh, there's, there's some, definitely some cool folks who uh, grew up out there. So, uh, Illinois was your hometown. And one thing I want to touch on, you mentioned basketball playing with president Obama. And again, folks, we will get into the good stuff and the main meat here in just a moment, but, uh, you were also a sports reporter in college. So what is your, sport of choice or maybe a team of choice? Right. Um, I've always been a huge basketball fan. So I had uh, uh, um, unrealistic aspirations to play basketball um, most of my life. And I played in high school, but never beyond that. Uh, love basketball, still do. Um, as someone who moved to Chicago just before Michael Jordan arrived on the Bulls, um, I'm a lifelong Bulls fan going back quite a bit. Uh, that being said, a huge sports fan, probably related to my mom, who's, uh, you know, was a phys ed major and the, is the, Olymp the senior Olympian I mentioned. We just did every kind of sport growing up. I played on the football team, played on the soccer team, baseball, all the traditional sports. Um, so, yeah, I love sports uh, at U of I. Um, since I couldn't play on the sports teams, uh, I was on, I was a sports reporter for what was called the Daily Illini and reported on the various sports teams. Uh, and I was part of what was called the Orange Crush, which was the student cheering section who would sit close to the court uh, at the basketball games. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we share that as well. I was a I wasn't good enough to be a college athlete. So uh, the best I could do is be a. Uh, you know, try to get close to them. And I also was a sports reporter. Uh, so, so you're a Bulls fan, which Michael Jordan is known as potentially the greatest of all time. Now you're living just outside Los Angeles where you, well, no fans right now, but um, have you had a chance to see LeBron James or a Laker game since you've lived here? Yeah, I have not had the uh, pleasure of getting to a Lakers game yet. Those are, tickets are hard to come by, to be honest. So uh, I haven't been able to do that. It's very, very... Um, it's been odd for me to go from Chicago with Michael Jordan and sort of resisting the comparison of LeBron James to Michael Jordan and whether they're even, you know, compatible. Michael's always been the greatest yeah. for all Chicago fans. Uh, but uh, LeBron's getting there uh, a few more titles and it'll be um, certainly up for up for grabs. Uh, but no, I haven't had a chance to see him. I would love to. Um, once they let us back in, but I watch them on TV all the time. Okay, cool. So uh, you did your schooling in uh, Chicago. At what point in your life was medicine and then ultimately uh, working in geriatrics, uh, when did that become a passion or a focus of yours? Right, so the connection back to all those animals I was talking about and being out in the wild, um, I had aspirations to be a veterinarian for a long time. In fact, I went to my undergraduate years thinking I'd be a veterinarian. Oh, wow. um, and uh, somewhere along the way, I realized that I liked healthy pets and animals, but I wasn't gonna feel so comfortable with sick ones and their suffering. And mostly it was working with them and the owners. And I, I just realized that probably wasn't, I wasn't gonna be able to do that. 
and uh, decided, well, what, what about people? Maybe I should just do doctoring for people instead of animals. And somewhere when an, an, as an undergraduate, uh, I became the, the president of the pre-health club, which included the pre-vet and pre-med um, groups and uh, really made this decision that I was going to be a pre-med major and try to go to med school. Uh, and it made my mom really happy and my dad um, less so because he um, he's the finance guy in the family. And he was like, oh, my goodness, how are you going to pay for this? Um, oh, yeah. We, we, we were not. Uh, no one in our family had been in medicine. I would have been, I was the first one. And that really wasn't in the cards. It was like, go to undergraduate, finish. He was an engineer. Okay. You know, he had gone, uh, he'd actually been at the Naval Academy. So he, he'd had the military pay for his education. And uh, they wanted me to be in, in one of the academies or ROTC, which I did for one year. But the military and I are not compatible. Um, so I had to find another path. Got it. Well, it seems like that path has uh, worked out pretty well for you. So let's jump now into geriatrics and then ultimately uh, palliative care. So there's not enough doctors in general in our country, but especially for me, I, you know, I do a lot in, in the geriatric world as well. And what would make a young person decide to then serve the geriatric population? What inspired you? Yeah, I will say I've always I had an old soul since I was a young person. Um, and the corollary to that is I like older people. Um, I, I find them interesting. My pace of life is slower, always has been. I like to linger and kind of take my time at things. That's always been the case. And as people get older, they tend to do that too. Um, I'm a big fan of history. Ah. So, you know, when I, when I talk to people who've been around for, 70, 80, 90, you know, I, I took care of a woman in Chicago was 112 years old when she passed away. Um, and she was, you know, an African-American woman from Texas who'd made it to Chicago and had seen so many things in life. Like I just learned from all my patients. And I found when I was in training, while most people, you know, kind of shied away from the older patients, um, that I, I loved to take care of them. You know, in medicine, they people would say, oh, they don't fit into any box because I don't know what to do. They have so many issues and it's complex. How how do I apply my algorithms I learned in medicine to this person with, you know, four algorithms and they don't all fit together in the right way. And I always was sort of bored by the easy stuff and wanted to like really spend the time to figure out the more complicated things. So, uh, and then at Pittsburgh, it got very solidified for me as I was an internal medicine resident uh, at the VA. So okay. I really sort of bonded with a lot of the World War II vets that I took care, care of in the VA system too. So uh, that was clinically why I gravitated to geriatrics. I really didn't think, oh, there's going to be a lot more older people or, you know, that there would be a need. I just, it was what I like to do. It made me happy. And so I became a geriatrician and 
realized I was unusual. Most people shy away from it, as you'd say. Yeah, well, that's, uh, that's a great background, great story there, William. So you then move up the ranks um, in your time out in, uh, you know, did residency out in the East Coast, did a lot in uh, Chicago, Illinois as well. And then eventually you made your way out West to City of Hope Medical Center. What inspired you to make the move um, out West? Yeah, I, I thought I'd, there's one other little piece here, which is in the middle of med school when I decided to get my, my um, doctoral degree. So I went back and got my PhD in health policy at the University of Chicago okay. for um, a series of, of reasons for both personal and professional. But part of it was I've always been fascinated by population health and health systems, right? So the one of the issues with older patients is how does our system fit together? for them. It requires a kind of multidisciplinary approach. Um, it, they're not as straightforward and sort of how do we do that? So I spent um, some time learning and, and learning how to do research. So I was this in this position of, you know, clinically in geriatrics, from a policy perspective, interested in Medicare policy and how do we take care of people and how do we bring the systems to them at University of Chicago, which is a very um, if you don't know, very academic place, very research heavy, um, and uh, patient care in some ways was always a little bit um, secondary to advancing knowledge and everything. So um, I was happily working away, had become the division chief of geriatrics and palliative medicine at the University of Chicago um, after my residency. And making good progress and had met uh, Arthi Hurria, who was a researcher at City of Hope and was a long-standing collaborator with her. And we were kind of building this new field of geriatric oncology um, together. Um, and uh, that along with my growing interest in, in supportive care or palliative care, um, uh, the position at City of Hope as a department chair, um, became available. And I remember Arthi saying, hey, you know, there's something here you might want to think about. Why don't you take a look at it? And I was at a point of my career of sort of plateauing as the division chief, feeling like, you know, I had done in, in seven, seven years a lot of what I wanted to do and was kind of itching to try something new. Okay. Um, and I, I will say this, I always wanted to live in Southern California. <laughs> so. Yeah. Uh, back when I was in high school and uh, I was a lifeguard for every, you know, that two months of the summer in Illinois and listening to the Beach Boys and the Eagles and kind of wondering what it would be like to be in Southern California. So that was also an appeal. Nice. How was the family? Was that a tough sell to the family or, or were they you know, easily on board? How was that conversation? Yeah, you know, I was looking everywhere in the country. This was um, including in uh, Pittsburgh, where I had, had done my training, and out in New York and here in California. Uh, my kids were a little skeptical. They were lifelong Chicagoans. They were not not looking forward to leaving. One who was starting high school and my twins who were, you know, just finishing sixth grade, they were all kind of didn't want to move as kids don't. They're used to what they do and have their friends. Yeah. Um, my wife, you know, is always uh, says, I'll do whatever you want. We're a team. We're going to figure this out. We'll go wherever you think is best for us. I'll support you. And then towards the end, as I was deciding, she said, I promise we can go anywhere you want, but I really 
we hope it's California. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so that was, uh, so she was an easy sell. We don't have family here, but we've always been uh, a kind of uh, a family unit, but not with an extended family. Her, her parents live in Florida. Um, now they retired to Florida. Um, my mom, I told you about, still lives in Springfield, Illinois. My father passed away um, some years ago from lung cancer. Um, so we didn't have um, that. My mom and my brother still live in Springfield. So okay. uh, yeah, we were kind of excited. We were ready to ready for a change. Awesome. And I'm sure the weather uh, teasing and joking at this time of year as we record in January is uh, probably something that that occurs. Um, yep. Okay. So tell the audience briefly, um, what is City of Hope and how is it different than uh, traditional, you know, acute care system? Right. You know, City of Hope's a comprehensive cancer center. Um, it's actually a national medical center, but it's a comprehensive cancer center, uh, freestanding. So it, it's not affiliated with the university as many um, institutions are. Uh, and it's focused primarily on cancer, also on diabetes. And so as an institution, everything we do, including supportive care and geriatrics is all around the care of cancer patients and our specialization in providing that care. Um, and uh, we don't have the traditional universities um, setting. So City of Hope has played a uh, role in my life. Um, the first place I ever volunteered was, I, so I grew up in Glendora. Sandberg uh -huh. Middle School is the rival of Goddard, close to where you live. Right. Uh, and so I went to Sandberg and we volunteered my very first, it was just a few hours, but at City of Hope bringing gifts to what I would guess is the pediatric oncology area um, to kids. And uh, we'll talk about a movie here in a moment. Um, there's a character named Danny. And so we would bring in, in a movie that uh, you were involved with. And that when I saw that movie, uh, The Elephant in the Room, which we'll talk about, it reminded me of that a little bit. Um, also, I've had family and friends cared for mm. at uh, City of Hope. And uh, from what I can recall, we definitely felt supported or you mentioned supportive care at City of Hope. And I always think of the term palliative care. You mentioned there's a correlation, I believe. Can you talk about why the phrase supportive care is used? Sure, sure. I, I have to say, you know, my oldest son is also a volunteer at City of Hope. And so we have that connection as well. He, he volunteers in the blood donor center. He's very committed to it. Uh, yeah, so um, the two terms, palliative care and supportive care, have um, uh, kind of grown up together. And in some cases, they're used interchangeably, but they are somewhat different. And it's worth sort of just for a moment distinguishing that. Um, you know, palliative care, first of all, is is not end-of-life care. So one thing that happens is people, they go, palliative care must mean end-of-life care. And it includes... Uh, care for people who are living at the end of their lives, but it's not end-of-life care. Um, and it really has two components to it. One is symptom management, which can happen at kind of any part of your cancer journey or, or any um, medical situation where you have symptoms like pain or shortness of breath or fatigue um, or um, um nausea and vomiting. So managing those quality of life affecting side effects of treatments and from cancer and other diseases is one big part of palliative care as a medical profession. Um, another part of it is what's termed goals of care. So yep. conversations about how people are making trade-offs 
balance between extending their life in many cases and quality of life? And how do you make those decisions when you're trying to um, choose between them? So that's the profession of palliative care, um, which is really focused on physicians and nurses or nurse practitioners. Within that, you know, if you have palliative care, supportive care is a broader kind of umbrella term. And our department represents that. Even you mentioned the volunteer program is in our supportive care departments. So um, within that, we also have our um, biobehavioral groups. So we have psychiatry and psychology and um, interventional pain doctors who do procedures for pain are all within supportive care. Also social work. The volunteers, our patient and family education groups, even the interpreters. So this whole wraparound set of services is under the umbrella of supportive care. And City of Hope has probably the most extensive and integrated supportive care program in the country. And it's one of the draws to coming to be part of this department is it's rare for someone to pull them all together and have them work as this um, a, a team together. So that's that's a great explanation. Um, we don't have time in today's episode, but for those of you that are interested in learning more about City of Hope and maybe the history of City of Hope and how they, um, first of all, didn't even take insurance and were helping with uh, TB, um, uh, we had the opportunity to uh, sit down with your colleague, uh, William, Dr. Vijay Trasal last year, and he goes into a little bit more about the history of, uh, of City of Hope. So again, for those of you that are interested, feel free to check out that episode. So before we get into uh, the elephant in the room, which definitely want to uh, discuss with you, you mentioned policy during your time in Chicago. And one of the challenges that we've had over the years with palliative care is funding for palliative care services often in the home as well. And so I wanted to touch base with you, William, and, and what is your current outlook on folks receiving reimbursement for palliative care services? And where's what's the current state of receiving reimbursement for palliative care services? Right, so the positive is that it's becoming better and better over time. So those services that we provide in palliative care are becoming recognized as not just add-on services, but essential services, particularly when it comes to cancer care. And so um, the recognition that you're going to see, a, say, an oncologist and a palliative care specialist right from the beginning um, and be paid for at least the medical and um, nursing or nurse practitioners pieces of it is pretty well accepted. And even the billing codes are changing to recognize the time it takes. So if you have to spend an hour and you, you can't do a sensitive conversation with a whole family for someone with a new diagnosis or a progression of disease in 15 minutes, probably. Um, but if we're not gonna pay people for their time, they're less likely to spend the time necessary um, for extended billing codes. So for those extra 15, 20, 30 minutes, you know, to recognize that and pay for it. So the profession is doing better in that way. I think that where the progress is um, still to be made and is happening slowly are other services, right? So our social workers, for example, now have billing codes for certain parts of what they do as long as it involves counseling the patients. So not merely, say, filling out forms to make sure that people find resources, but doing mental health services as a social worker is now recognized and we can be it can be billed for it. And in the bigger picture, 
after this move from so-called volume-based care to value-based care is starting to be recognized and um, some financial mechanisms in place. And, and real briefly, from a policy perspective, when you pay for procedures, you get lots of procedures. <laughs> so, right, when, when you bill certain things that'll happen and our system was sort of set up that way so doctors were incentivized perhaps um, at the margin to do a procedure or do a test when that's what was going to be reimbursed and now people have said you know there's dangers to that right if we do a test and it's a false positive and you do a bunch of follow-ups that was not a good use of resources right or if in the last few weeks of your life we're treating you with you know aggressive therapies that are um, lowering your quality of life and probably aren't extending your life. Maybe that's not the best way to spend our spend our money, either for individuals or the system. So this value based care is we pay you for taking care of the whole person, and those systems are happening um, a bit by bit. You know, there's always more to do, but we're getting there. So that is some great information about City of Hope and what supportive care and palliative care is, including some progress on funding. So let's jump into the little poster over your left shoulder there, the elephant in the room, um, which I had the opportunity to watch just last night. I realized on my calendar that I was interviewing this morning. I'm like, oh, shoot, I haven't watched the movie yet in all candor. Um, so my son, who's 10, asked if he could watch it with me. And it really, um, you know, it brings up some tough subjects. So I told him no, although I'm, after watching it, I might, I might rethink it. So let's just jump right into it, William. Tell us about the, what is the elephant in the room? What's the movie about? And what was the inspiration behind it? Right. So the elephant in the room is what people are afraid to talk about when it comes to uh, care. Uh, and, and the focus is in the um, palliative care realm and particularly patients who are nearing the end of their life. We avoid talking about it. It tends to be the elephant in the room when we're uh, talking about things. And so the film is the only one I know of that's a feature film that has as the centerpiece of the story, the relationship between a palliative care nurse practitioner um, and her patients. Um, and not as a side story and not with death as the like, you know, beautiful final scene or how it's usually portrayed, but as this journey that happens as patients um, move along and the re relationships that develop between the providers and the patients. Um, the, the name also reflects um, the inspiration behind it. So the screenplay was written by Bonnie Freeman, who is a nurse practitioner in our Department of Supportive Care Medicine. Um, and she had been doing a lot of education and wrote a book called Resilient Hearts about the patient stories behind what we do that she converted into a screenplay and then wanted to make a movie about it. Um, the... I still remember Bonnie, her office was right next to mine. So I came to City of Hope and the nurse practitioner office is right next to my office, including Bonnie, who I worked with. And she came to me one day and she said, I have this idea. And if you knew Bonnie, she always had ideas. So she was like, I have this idea. Um, I want to make a movie from, you know, I wrote a screenplay and I want to make a movie and we need to film it at City of Hope. And she said, can we do that? And I said, Absolutely not, Bonnie. We, we don't film movies in the hospital. We take care of patients. I have no idea how to do that. And she said, well, would you just ask? And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go ask on your behalf because, you know, and uh, to my surprise with, you know, some rules um, about how we would film it, 
they said, yes, you could do it under these circumstances. So that's how the film came to get started and filmed at least. That's great. And um, so how did you, I mean, movies are not cheap, right? And this isn't the most, uh, I guess, big screen, super popular. It's going to bring in hundreds of millions of dollars. So how did you fund this type of uh, movie? Right. So um, I'll try to condense what's been a little bit of a let's keep trying story about the movie. So we really had no idea that we would finish it and have it be a feature film. And in fact, we thought it might be a good education vehicle. And if we could have something that served that purpose, that would be great. Uh, and if it was more, that would be an extra, you know, cherry on top to that. Um, so we started off did the and, and got permission to shoot on weekends and at night over a certain amount of time at City of Hope. We used the Biller Center as the like centerpiece for where people came in. Uh, Bonnie um, and her husband, Alan, who directs the film, uh, asked people to act uh, gratis for free, basically. And so got professional actors to play the lead. Um, and then a number of people from City of Hope, frankly, from our department to do different roles kind of compatible with what they did for a living. And the most obvious example is the social worker in the film is a social worker at City of Hope, Rapinder Situ, who oh, wow. plays that role. So she's the most prominent non-professional actor who that was the only acting she's ever done was as this social worker. And um, a number of other people, uh, David Trejo, who runs our Biller Center, um, is in it. Um, one of our physicians, um, Dr. Buga is in it, um, and some of us, me and my family included, play some ancillary roles. So, so the labor was free, essentially. The location was free, essentially. Um, and then, so on that budget, we were able to sort of do a fundraiser, one of the online fundraisers. Um, and that's, to, to advance it a little bit, they needed $10,000 to do it. They had raised um, less than that. And my wife and I, Tamara, believed in the film. So we were like, well, we'll get them to their 10,000 because if they don't, they have to give the money back. So we, we pushed them over that initial limit. That was just to get it filmed, done in the can and sort of ready for uh, eventual production. Um, but there's sort of more to get it to the finish line, I would say, that's another part of the story. But let me pause here, see if there's, uh, you know, other things to say about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's great. And you put your own, you know, skin in the game based on your support of um, of that. You mentioned David Trejo before we recorded. Um, I had the chance to interact with David. He actually emailed me this morning because I, uh, back, um, I shared with you before we started to record that, um, you know, that I recognized him and uh, we took a quick pause in the uh, recording today and um, I had to click a uh, click on something to get the recording going again. And I saw him re reply back. So he said it was a pleasure and it's cool to hear how so many other staff probably felt the same way. So, um, yeah, so so fortunately, you know, it's not a gigantic amount of money to overcome and you've helped them get there. So what happens next once you have it in the can, then what? Yeah, and so that that was the next part of the story. So it has a very um, inspiring part and a sort of uh, uh, a tragic part to it too. So Bonnie Freeman, right after the film wrapped, I still remember uh, this. She went away uh, on a vacation to visit family and um, was 
tragically died um, during this trip. So she passed away just as the film finished. And um, we were uh, there with a film that needed to be finished and without sort of Bonnie's guiding light, but it, it led to a lot of inspiring behavior for everybody. We were like, well, Bonnie wanted to see this through to the end. So I, Nico Vitaco, who plays the lead, Michael, uh, and Tamir Gadalia, who's the producer, um, and my wife and I got together and said, well, let's, let's see if we can turn it into a feature film. And that meant a lot of post-production things, uh, yeah. things that I'm were all new to me. I had no idea and would cost some more money to make it get there. So we actually got to meet with um, the post-production um, gentleman who helped with music and helps with all the film. Um, and um, David Eichhorn is his name. David is actually an Emmy award-winning post-production person. He has three Emmy awards. And he just was, like many of us, inspired by the film. He loved the story. We sat at his house with Bonnie and sort of talked with him. And he said, you know, I just really believe in this. And so I'll basically charge you co my costs to do this, to finish up production. Um, but I won't charge my usual rates because I think it's so important. Um, and so we determined to push ahead and over the next two and a half years and a significant amount more money on Tamara and I's behalf, we became the executive producers and sort of all worked together to bring it to a feature film quality. And uh, David's professionalism made a huge difference for that. Um, yeah. And then we were like, wow, we, we have a whole film. We have like a real film now, one that we could show. And we went on the um, um, uh, the festival tour. So we started submitting to festivals to see if it could would get any interest. And I'll, I'll pause there, but that was like the next then. So we got that far. We got a film, pretty high quality. And then we went to the festivals to see, can we get others to say if it's any good or not? Yeah. So really quickly, do you ever think you'd be an executive producer uh, before this experience? You know, I joke that I... I, I it, I took it off my bucket list, but it had never been on my bucket list. So I had to write it on first. And then I checked it off after we became the executive producers. Um, and, you know, when it when it it got attention, you know, at the festivals, won some awards um, uh, at the it, it made it to the Chelsea Film Festival in New York, which is one of the serious festivals. We sort of thought, well, it, it's really going to turn into something. Um, and, you know, we we've learned a lot. I feel like it's been a really interesting in this way. Um, experience for me. I've published almost 200 papers in my life. Um, none of them have been cited as much as this film has been seen by people about our our field. And so the chance to bring it to the um, outside of the group of us who care the most has been the most important thing to us um, for this. So uh, we were amazed, honestly, when it ended up on Amazon Prime. <laughs> Yeah, the great story. And one thing we haven't really discussed is some of the content of the film and um, being fresh on my mind uh, from watching it last night. Um, I planned to watch it the previous weekend, didn't get to, but watch it last night. So um, I've been in healthcare, home care for 20 years and seen a lot. I know you've obviously seen much more than I have and your wealth of experience. But um, in the movie, you see that doctors and healthcare leaders, like the nurse practitioner character, Michael, um, was able to mix fun humor, but also be very direct. 
um, a part of the movie where one of the leading actors, Cooper, who was a patient that Michael bonded with, Michael, the, Michael was able to be very direct with the family. And so it's interesting to see this guy who's funny, humorous, but also can be very direct and it's appropriate to be very direct. So why, why from your lens is it important to share that with families, with the audience? Right. You know, this, this movie I thought really highlighted um, what I'll call boundaries and what it means to be on either side of some of these boundaries. And so, you know, you don't get to see behind the scenes that much, you know, healthcare workers, I think, um, as we're finding in the current environment with COVID, like there's a lot that comes back, right? The, the extending compassion also sort of drains your inner reserves to sort of continue to provide. And I think we all face it. And it's not that we, people complain, but it builds up over time, that pressure and you need some outlet. And so humor becomes that and sort of showing people that you can have humor and have normalcy in life, even when it's in its most difficult and serious stages, I think is one of the really great messages of this. You know, we highlight it in the film, but I think we've all gone through that. Uh, but it's kind of a secret in the field, right? The behind the scenes humor with the each other that this film brings out was important to us. And if you, you know, when you see the film, it really goes quickly from funny to like super serious and direct, as you said, and we wanted that to be the case. Um, the other thing is the um, ability to um, step into people's lives during some of the most important parts of it and, and, and be serious, not um, hide from people when things are becoming serious and, nearing the end um the scene where cooper says something like you know i don't want my family to not be able to for me to not be able to talk to my family about this yeah right and that is we often see that um and that you know families aren't always um comfortable with all of it either right so in the film the the, the tension between the patient who's trying to communicate with his family and the family who are at odds with the medical team. Yeah. Um, it's very typical. Uh, I won't say it always happens, but it happens a lot. And how do you do that? Um, so all these different boundaries that you decide to cross or not. And, and in this case, I know from knowing Bonnie, um, she felt like she had kind of gotten a little too far with this one, right? We all find those patients who really touch your heart and you get very close to them and you're like, Oh, when am I, when have I, you know, cross that boundary or not of providing compassion, but um, they're my friend now. They're not my patient. How do I navigate that? And, you know, Michael sort of probably gets a little bit across that line, which again, brings up that sort of tension in the field. So we were really happy with the way those boundary issues and the tensions of professionalism and personal things came to light in this film. Yeah, that's great. And I'm glad you touched on, on, Michael, maybe even crossing, you know, some boundaries a little bit. One thing that I'm really glad you showed in the movie is I think sometimes when we look at doctors or healthcare people, we think of them as non-emotional, you know, fact, you know, sometimes maybe you might feel they're uncaring. And in this movie, you see the effects of um, all the hard work, Michael, the nurse practitioner putting in and how it uh, wears on him. And um, I won't go into details. I, I encourage you to check it out in the movie, but his colleagues had to kind of come along his side after hours and in his personal life to lift him back up after he just was so drained emotionally. Um, 
Yeah, my wife's favorite scene really briefly was the one with with um, Rapinder, so the social worker, um, that's our colleague's name, where she's, it's, there's no words, right? She just walks into the bathroom, they're getting ready to go do a, a, a joyful thing with patients, and she's just at her, you know, she's sort of at her limit, right? She has her wow. home, she's given everything she can, she just kind of looks in the mirror, you know, and tries to gather herself as best she can, and, uh, you know, it's a very emotional scene for a, a non-speaking alone scene, yeah. and, uh, you know, I know Rapinder was just like, we all do this. We all like stand outside a patient room and like gather ourselves so that we could go in and be at our best with them. And so um, I love, I love that way that gets portrayed. And she's perfect for that because she just brings like what social workers do to the scene. Yeah, that is awesome story about Rapinder um, and the actual, you know, social work that she does. So um, again, folks, uh, elephant, the elephant in the room is available on Prime Video. Um, it's included in Prime membership, by the way. So if you're like me and cheap and you're like, oh, do I got to spend four bucks or $3.99? I was ready. I mean, I was going to, you know, do it. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it was included in Prime membership. So check it out on Prime Video, the elephant in the room. If people don't have Prime, is there another way to catch it or is that exclusive? Right. So for now, it's available on Prime unless you're in another country. So we actually are in 10 or more countries around the world. Um, so for other places, we can provide that for you. We're happy to. Um, it just depends where you are. For now, it's on Prime. Uh, um, and that's where we are asking people to go. It's it's the simplest place. Um, you can watch the trailer um, online anywhere you want. It's on YouTube and things like that. So yeah, please, please do go to Prime. If if people do watch it, we would encourage you to rate it and even write a review. Um, it helps it helps the film continue to be on Prime and to get more attention from other places so more people will see it. Awesome. I'll uh, leave myself a note to do that today as well. So William, thanks so much for being our guest again today. If folks want to learn more about City of Hope, should they check out the website? And if so, what is the uh, what's the website there? Sure. The, the general City of Hope website is www.cityofhope, just written out, dot org. Um, okay. And then they can click through to the supportive care section of it. Okay, great. And if people want to keep tabs on what you're up to, is LinkedIn a good place or Twitter? Are you involved in any of the social uh, oh. channels? Oh, good. Uh, I love Twitter. Um, please do um, follow me at Twitter. It's William Dale underscore MD. Uh, and lots of interesting things on support care and, and geriatric oncology and Chicago Bulls. <laughs> awesome. Um, and one thing I want to note as well, going into this, um, uh, just doing some research and getting to know you online prior to the recording, is a quote that you had um, from, I believe, a blog in 2018. And it says, assume that motivations from others are good and positive rather than bad or negative. And I love that quote, and it's something I'm trying to teach my family, my kids. And uh, it's obviously separate from today's main content, but I, I just want to say I appreciate that quote about you that I saw in 2018. Sure, it's one of my life lessons. Um, it's easy to assume the worst, um, but better to assume, assume the best. So um, I try to remind myself. Awesome. 
I'd like to thank one of our listeners, John, who just left us a wonderful podcast review. And a reminder, the reviews on Pop Up Podcast help keep our show visible, credible, and help bring in guests like some of those that you've seen or listened to already. So here's the review from John. The title on uh, looks like Apple Podcasts is Wonderful Healthcare Podcast. Came across Pop Health during the interview with U.S. Senator Tom Daschle, who played a part in the enactment of the Affordable Care Act under the Obama administration. The invaluable insights, challenges, triumphs, and evolution of the healthcare industry that this podcast sheds light on is what sets it apart from many other podcasts, especially during this time of the pandemic. This was left by John in April on April 14th, 2021. John, thanks so much for your kind review. And again, folks, these type of reviews help keep the show running, help keep the show at the top of the charts, and we really appreciate them. So please uh, feel free to leave a review yourself. Thanks so much. Take care. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of Pop Health Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. And if you have and want to check out other episodes, visit us at pophealthpodcast.com, iTunes or Apple Music, Spotify, Stitcher, and now YouTube as well. Take care.